Hello and welcome. Today's guest is Tiffany Cloud, and Tiffany is a phenomenal woman with a quite a diverse background, and it's all equally awesome. And I'd want to tell you a little bit about Tiffany before uh, before I hand over the microphone to her. She is an advertising, communications, public relations, and strategy expert. She has quite a diversified yet equally fascinating background. Tiffany is a television host. She's an advocate for veterans. Also, she recently published a book, Sleeping with Dog Tags, that basically is a is a firsthand account of what it was like to her for her to be a wife while her husband was serving in Afghanistan. So I highly recommend you picking up Sleeping with Dog Tags. Most recently, Tiffany was the senior advisor for the campaign to elect Dan Muser for Congress. The one thing that I noticed about Tiffany when I was reading a little bit about her bio and her background, something that struck me was a quote. It struck me because it says, don't complain about it, do something about it. And I think that's the best way to really let you run with this, Tiffany, because uh, I think that's your M.O. It is my M.O. And first of all, thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) I, I love the whole concept behind this. I love that you're featuring all sorts of uh, diverse women. Diverse women, real women. Yep, who get stuff done and maybe, you know, don't put their names out there a lot in the public eye. And uh, I think it's important for more women to be recognized for the great work they're doing, certainly in our area, our community. So I love what you're doing. And yeah, I my motto is absolutely don't complain about it, do something about it. It's very, very easy to point out the problems. You know, anybody can do that. Yeah, anybody can do that. So what do you think um, strikes you most today with what's going on, whether it's locally, nationally, um, worldwide, that people are sitting back and complaining, bitching, whatever you want to call it, but that's the easy thing to do. It is the easy thing to do. I mean, I will say from a positive standpoint, it's step one. Right. To find your voice. Okay. And to have a voice. And I'll take having a voice over total complacency any day of the week. So step one is to have a voice. I think, though, step two is exactly to not just point out particularly the obvious Um, But to really dig in and try to come up with the tough solutions, sometimes the unpopular solutions, um, to to figure out how to make things better, how to make the circumstances in your life better, in your community better, in your nation better. Know that you may not be beloved for coming Mm -hmm. up with ideas. Um, You may be vilified in some cases uh, for coming up, you know, People complain, but then they don't want to rock the boat. So the key is figuring out how to come up with solutions, knowing that you may rock the boat and be willing to accept the consequences for that. All right. So how about an example or two or three or four? Oh, gosh. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, I mean, in my my life, for example, um, I'll just start with the fact that I am a military spouse. Mm -hmm. Um, My husband's a three-tour combat veteran, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, He, like many other veterans, uh, came home from war years ago, and he struggled with the process of assimilating into civilian life again. Um, A lot of times when people come home from war, they, they isolate um, some choose to self-medicate. Uh, they are very uncomfortable often going out in crowds and being around people. Um, many suffer various forms of trauma from what they've seen, what they've done, what they've had to do. And 
I noticed that there was not enough being done to talk about post-traumatic stress years ago. Mm -hmm. Years ago, this was. I started writing articles about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, articles about, at the time, something that wasn't talked about a lot, which was the Veterans Administration and the fact that we had, at the time, 22 veterans a day committing suicide and We had 800,000 veterans stuck in a disability rating backlog. Um, And I really spent a lot of time writing about uh, solutions, writing for various websites. Um, One was called Thoughtful Women. Um, They had a Facebook page. Um, uh, Women's Voices was another one. And I just started writing about these issues that I thought were really, really important and what could be done to help First of all, quash the stigma of post-traumatic stress, and then secondarily, what could be done to help veterans return home more easily, Uh, what the Veterans Administration could do in terms of more peer-to-peer counseling, Mm -hmm. in terms of helping veterans navigate more swiftly through the disability backlog, in terms of not over-medicating our veterans, which was a big issue but also what the community could do in terms of welcoming veterans home. And the thing is, when a veteran's struggling like that, it affects not only the veteran, it affects the family, it affects the the spouse. Uh, Mm -hmm. There is something called secondary post-traumatic stress, and and often spouses, um, the husbands and wives of combat veterans, can start to feel that kind of trauma too. Could you speak a little bit about the stigma when you mentioned uh, the stigma of post-traumatic stress disorder? What do you see as as a big hurdle, as the largest hurdle of trying to get over getting past that stigma? Because doesn't the stigma add to the shame of PTSD? Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, sometimes the military punishes its own and eats its own. And I love our United States military very much. Um, however, sometimes veterans are afraid to stand up and say, I need help. They worry that they will um, lose that promotion or they worry that they'll be bucketed in with you know, not being able to adjust. You know, they're all about being strong and courageous. And often veterans are under the false perception that talking about pain is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. I think we're getting much better. You know, I, I started writing about this several years ago. I will say I am thrilled to see over the last eight to 10 years, the number of organizations, uh, 501c3s that have stepped up, um, the fact that the Veterans Administration is is doing more, um, the fact that our government leaders are recognizing this is an issue. Do I think things have completely changed yet? No. I mean, turning around uh, the, the VA, as my husband once joked, it's like turning the Titanic around. Mm-hmm. It's going to take time. But we've made a lot of progress in having veterans understand that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to not come home from combat and you know, just act like everything's Yeah, because if you think normal. about it, how could you come back from combat seeing and experiencing, living what what you went through 
and and come home and be like nothing happened. You'd have to be a machine. You'd have to be a machine. And I actually think it's more normal to come home and to experience trauma than not to experience trauma. So so I think it is a healthy thing to go through the process. Um, And and yeah, you would have to completely disassociate from everything that you've done. And there's nothing wrong with compartmentalizing to a degree. We Mm -hmm. all compartmentalize when we have our own personal trauma, but there's a difference between compartmentalizing and and completely disassociating. Um, so I think it's important that veterans are talking more, mm-hmm. that they're being allowed to discuss this more. I think we owe a debt of gratitude also to our Vietnam veterans who, for for all the sacrifices that they made, I think... And we used to call it back during World War One and World War Two. It, it, it wasn't called post-traumatic stress. I mean, you know, they called it shell shock. Yes. But you know, thank you to the Vietnam veterans for for beginning the process of making it more okay to talk about this. And now our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans feel more okay talking. And and it's important that the families, the spouses, are supportive and understanding and patient and uh, allow the veteran time to talk if they want, to heal if they want, to go out hunting, fishing, off-roading if they want, whatever it is that helps them find peace. Mm-hmm. And, and normalcy. And normalcy, A yes. Sense of normalcy. Yes. Sleeping with dog tags, mm-hmm. what was your uh, catalyst for writing this book? Well, back in around 2011, I think it was, my husband uh, deployed on his thir- third tour to combat because he hadn't had enough after the first two tours. Um, so so he went to Afghanistan for a year-long uh, tour of duty. He and I had been recently married. We were b- both second marriages. Mm-hmm. So I became a military spouse in my 40s, which was just an interesting thing unto itself because you learn very quickly as a military spouse that you have absolutely no control whatsoever. You can't call them when you want to call them. You can't find out what's going on. It's not like the military or the U.S. government uh, works on, on your schedule. You work very much on theirs. And so it was quite an adjustment for control self me. Mm-hmm. To, to deal with his being away and in a, in a remote region um, and doing dangerous duty. And so I coped just by writing about my feelings as a spouse during his tour of combat. What war was like for me on the home front? What was war like you for you on the home front? Well, we battle enemies too, but our enemies are more emotional ones, fear mm-hmm. and doubt and lack of control. Um, and so trying to to deal with that and trying to fight those battles, um, trying to get on with the day-to-day for the kids and be strong, but at the same time, always be realistic that he may come home injured or worse. What I did was I just started writing as a form of therapy. I really never intended to publish anything. I just started writing about what it was like as a military spouse to have sleepless nights, night after night after night, thinking about and worrying about my husband, whom I had just married, um, who it took me 40-some years to find, and I wrote about my experience of 
what war was like from the perspective of the home front, waiting for the call when the news reports would come across the television. You know, my husband was in eastern Afghanistan, for example, with special operations forces. And I remember in early August when it came across the ticker that 30 special operations forces were shot down in a Chinook helicopter in eastern Afghanistan. And he was supposed to call me that day. And he hadn't called. And mm. I was very concerned that he was among the killed. Um, he was obviously at the time in the blackout period where they don't, nobody's called. So because they're alerting the families of those lost. I remember hours and hours later, finally getting that call and getting the mixture of feelings of complete relief and joy, followed by tremendous guilt mm -hmm. and almost like survivor guilt, mm -hmm. because yes. I was thinking about all, all the other spouses yes. who were getting a different call that day or a different, more so visit that day or the next day. Um, so just writing was very helpful and therapeutic for me as I was going through this experience where I felt completely and totally out of control and at the mercy of other things. And the one thing I could control was words to paper. Mm-hmm strokes of the keyboard. So Absolutely. I just I just wrote. Yeah. I just wrote and told my story. And I don't think my story is that different than the story of thousands and thousands and thousands of military spouses who've gone through this. I just shared all of my idiosyncrasies and the wacky things that I did and and uh you know, I eating bags of marshmallows over the fire. I mean, I used to Suzanne, I used to take a marshmallow and I put it on a stick and I hold it over the fire. This is no joke. And I'd see if I could brown it because I'm a very impatient person, admittedly. And inevitably, I wouldn't brown it because I'd just shove it in the flame and I'd blacken it and I'd blow it out. And I would do that to think if, if I'd be patient enough to wait the year for him to come home. And I, I would never get through that stupid little exercise. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, not it's at all. It's a good visual, though. I yeah. can actually see you doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So... The anyway. feedback you got from the book, from, from military spouses. Well, you know, it's funny. I thought that maybe my mom would read it. And, you know, because, again, I, I, this, this is not this great epic novel. I just, I just really wrote it for therapy. I thought a couple family members would read it. But it really took off in 2012 in the military spouse community. And I think just a lot of military spouses appreciated that somebody told what war was like from their perspective. They're not alone. Right. They didn't feel alone. They would read about the crazy things I did from, you know, eating marshmallows endlessly to, to whatever it was that I did. And they would think, well, maybe I'm not so wacky after all. And maybe I my frustrations aren't so um, strange or peculiar after all. And they, it, they just felt like somebody heard them and could relate to mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And... Today, you still support, you still interact, you are still part of that military spouse community, because that's something that never really goes away. It never goes away. My husband is um, medically retired due to combat injuries. Like six times from enemy fire was enough. Um, so he is medically retired after 17 years and uh, three and a half years downrange. Um, but yeah, I, I will consider myself a military spouse always. And um, we, my husband and I, do a lot for uh, the veteran community. We 
participate with a lot of 501c3s in supporting their efforts. We created a television show together called Warrior Summit Outdoors, where he, a big hunter, and, and he loves to fish, he takes other combat veterans on outdoor adventures to help them heal the scars of war in the great outdoors. And I write and co-produce the show with him. And we started that in spring of 2014 after he was retired, um, aired a couple episodes locally, and then we were picked up by U2 America, and we're in about 35 million households across the nation. That's so. fantastic. That's it's fantastic. Fun. So so where are some of the places that, that Eric, your husband, takes the um, the veterans, the soldiers? He, yeah, he, he takes them on various hunts. He's done them in Texas, Colorado, um, He's gone fishing off the coast of Georgia, Maryland. Uh, we do a lot of things, of course, here locally in Pennsylvania. Um, we tie in often with uh, 501c3s in the region, whether it's Hunts for Healing mm-hmm. or Ultimate Veteran Adventures. Um, and and really, it's not about the, for example, hunting. It's not about the kill. It's not about the harvest. It's really about the camaraderie. Right. It's about being with other veterans in the peace of nature, no one shooting back, um, just finding one's tranquility, one's sanctuary, um, and and being with people who have a common understanding of the pain that you've been through, and um, no judgment. Right. And again, they're just trying to find their way home. They're trying to find their new normal. Their new normal. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very fulfilling thing. We've been doing it now nearly five years and plan to keep on doing it. And uh, you really it's I have to give the credit to my husband in, in large part because I just said to him, why don't you come home and host an outdoor show locally? Uh, and he was the one who said, well, let's take it up a notch and let's do it and have it be a veteran focused outdoor show. And then we just snowballed from there with ideas and. It's been great fun. There we are. There we are. Yeah. You have been uh, involved and interested in politics mm-hmm. for a long time, a, a self-proclaimed political junkie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So mm-hmm. what does that mean to you, Tiffany, political junkie? Well, I'm someone who really follows politics. I always have. I'm very interested in it. Um, I think it's one of the most important things that we do. I think we have a responsibility as Americans, to um, be engaged in the process of politics. Uh, It does start, we the people. Yes. Um, And so I think we need to be aware of the issues. We need to vet the people running for office. We need to support people that I believe are in line with the intentions of our founders. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't like politics, or I don't want to vote, or... I can't be bothered with that. Um, To me, it's one of the most important things that we need to do because really politics drives everything. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, and, and, you know, in politics or anything really, there there needs to be a checks and balances. Why why do so many take it to the limit thinking it must be a us versus them or you're either for us or against us? It's unfortunate that we've gotten that yeah. way. Um, I mean, I think some of that started, really, I think it started way back in the the Gore versus W race 
the old hanging chads. Mm-hmm. I think the yes. division started way back then, and it's just gotten more and more pronounced since then. I think it's unfortunate that we forgot the part of compromise. I think it's unfortunate that we forgot that you know, Jefferson, if he were alive today, would probably have been a Democrat, and Adams would have probably been a Republican. And the two of them, they they fought, they disagreed, they challenged each other, but together they created our nation's documents, and together they had a tremendous friendship, which lasted their lifetimes. And it's okay to completely disagree with someone, but to try to find common ground mm-hmm. for the betterment of the nation um, and to remember that it's about putting the safety and the security of the people first Um it's unfortunate that we're so dug in right now. I, I don't like that we're so dug in. I have a lot of friends who I'm, I'm openly a conservative. Um, I have a lot of really good friends who aren't. Mm-hmm. And and we have respectful conversation. Okay, so after after the the election with with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, I saw many posts. I heard many comments that if you voted for that man, I cannot be your friend. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you in my family. I mean, it's that strong. Yes. There's a hatred. There is. Where where I try to take a step back and think we all want what's best for the country. I would think the majority of us want what's best for the country. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a way, you know, you have your way, I have my way, this person has this way, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we want what's best for our country. And we have to get back to compromise, yeah. too. We have to get back to giving a little and each side giving a little and finding where we can meet in the middle. Um, we can't be so dug in on either side or we are going to get absolutely nothing done. And I think we've seen that over and over and over again. So, again, we don't all have to think the same way. Clearly, Jefferson and Adams didn't think the same way. And we are a nation that's so rich that we don't, that we're all allowed to voice our thoughts and they're allowed to be diverse. I think that that's part of what makes our nation so great. But yeah, the listening without hearing and the disregarding and dismissing alternate points of view is dangerous, I think. And I see it on both sides. I oh, absolutely. see it on social media where it's just there's an ugliness, there's vile, it's venomous. It's, oh, yeah. It's so ugly. I've had it happen to me. Listen, I had grown adults who unfriended me, who blocked me who you know, during the race, of course, because I, well, I was initially actually a Ted Cruz supporter. Then I became a Trump supporter. Um, and, oh, I had so many people in the primary. The Trump people hated me in the general election when I was with Trump. The Clinton people hated me. I got unfriended here and there. I mean, it was it was nuts and silly. Um, but you persisted. I persisted. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm not going to. Well, no, I'm, nobody's ever going to. No, uh, it ain't happening. Have me zip my mouth. I mean, that's that. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't know how to do that. That would be no fun. No, that would be no fun and, and not you and quite boring, actually. It would be, um, yeah. You've got a lot of stuff to get done yet in your lifetime. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the uh, campaign. Okay. Um, you were the senior advisor for the campaign to elect Dan Muser to Congress, mm-hmm. um, and that was a very successful campaign. 
Yes. You dedicated two years of your life to this campaign? I did. So tell me how you got involved. I mean, this is this is exciting stuff. You're talking national here. Mm-hmm. Well, I had done some other campaign work previously, um, some smaller races. I was involved, for example, in Tara Hill's initial race when she ran against the House Majority Leader, Todd Eachis, and everybody said there's no way she could win. There's no way she could take him down. He's been in there 14 years, blah, 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 blah. And she ended up winning by and 10 points. Yes, look what happened. And it was this huge upset uh, race that got a lot of uh, statewide attention. So I did that one, and I did some other uh, smaller local races. I I knew Dan Muser for, I've known Dan Muser for about 15, 16 years. I worked for him in the private sector uh, at a company called Pride Mobility Products. When he was the president there, I was a vice president there. We worked closely together. Uh, He knew the way I thought um, strategically. He knew that I had done political work, but I also knew how he liked to work. And what we share in common um, is a very similar work ethic. We both work extremely hard, and I believe that that's one of the reasons he wanted me on his campaign. And he knew I knew a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've done yeah. this before. So he asked me to work on the campaign. I I was one of the very first, if not the first person he he brought on board, and. Uh, even before he announced, uh, I was doing things with him and then saw the whole thing through till he won. What was it like to be a senior advisor? I mean, as, as far as strategy, as, what was a day like, a day in the life of Tiffany in this campaign? Well, you know, it depends on what part of the campaign you're talking about, but certainly there, were, there was a lot of writing policy papers and working on policy papers with the candidate, um, making sure that he communicated what his message was and that I assisted him in doing that and making sure we we made it clear what he stood for um, so that there would be no questions who the people would be voting for. Uh, a lot of events. Uh, I mean, he did events, gosh, it seemed like morning, noon, and night. So going to events, organizing events, getting the word out about events, um, working on uh, – building coalitions, whether it was, just to speak, go back, veterans coalitions, mm-hmm. whether it was agriculture coalitions. Very much into farming, farming support. Yeah, yes. I mean, the number one industry in the district that he ran in, mm-hmm. and he was running against the former Secretary of Agriculture for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, so that was certainly a, a very important coalition, You know, getting to know the firefighters, the first responders, so amassing that support. Um and really, just whatever the candidate needed to get done, uh, working with the candidate uh, to communicate his message with the media, uh, making sure that he was out there on the airwaves and answering the questions, and uh, so supporting his vision for his campaign, because whether it was Dan Muser or Tara Tuhill before or any candidate, ultimately a campaign is really run by the candidate and it's supporting their vision for what they want. And this was not a nine to five Monday through Friday job. Oh no, then no. I would have had sleep. No, I didn't sleep for two years. No, no, no. No. Um as I said, Dan works hard and so do I. And it's something we have in common and I don't recall sleeping much for about two years. 
Um, I don't recall, other than I think Christmas Eve and day, I don't recall taking a day off in two years, and I'm not kidding. You're just going at such a such a pace, and anybody who's done campaign work understands what I'm talking about. You're going at such a pace. You, you're trying to to just meet every single person you can meet, tens of thousands of people that you want to touch in some way, shape, or form. And so there's not a lot of time for sleep. You, you decide that you could sleep after the race is over. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am a mom. Yeah. I'm a mom and a stepmom. Uh-huh. And yeah, there was the the balancing of also raising a kid. Uh, my, my stepdaughter comes every other weekend, but my daughter's, of course, with me all the time. And she's at that precocious 13 years old. Um, but she, you know what? She was great. She was great, very interested in what I was doing, very supportive and understanding that mommy couldn't be home all the time. And my husband was awesome um, and very understanding that his wife couldn't be home all the time. And they just they loved that I was doing something I love doing. I, I enjoy political strategy. I enjoy executing to a plan. And uh, they were so supportive of what I was doing. So, but, but yeah, I've been making up for a lot of lost time over the last few months. I've been really loving up my family a lot. Understandable, of course. Now, what was it like um, the evening of the election? Well, in this case, the, I would say the evening of the primary was actually in some ways more exciting than the evening of the general election because it's a heavy Republican district. My candidate was running as a Republican, so we knew that if he won the primary, that he had a pretty good shot in the general election. You know, you never take anything for granted. Right. I would never take a single vote for granted. But it was really going to be a tough primary race. So that night, certainly, we felt that we were in a very good position. We knew that we had done everything that we could think to do. Um, we were all optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. And honestly, the second that the results came in, it was just a tremendous moment of excitement, uh, a very happy moment for the candidate, um, very proud of the team, excited for his family. Uh, so so I would say the primary night was, for me, the most exciting one. I, I felt, again, never taking for granted, but I felt pretty confident he was going to win the general election. Um I th- thought that we had the right plan in place to do so. I knew that we had the right people to execute to the plan. And so general election night to me was just sort of more of an exhale than anything else. <laughs> okay. I mean, for, for me it was. But um, nevertheless, of course, until they announce, you're nervous as all get out. You're nervous. And and just seeing if you're going to win, how much you're going to win by. Right. Is it going to be a close one? Is it going to – you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. You don't know. And then – do you know what you're going to do next? I mean, you have successful campaigns under your belt. You've got your television show. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of stuff going on. You're yeah. kind of reconnecting with your family again and kind of getting rerooted after, you know, the two years um, that you've been working on the campaign. So what are you going to do next? What's well, on the horizon? Well, you know, it's a good question. Um, th- amidst all of the campaign towards the end, I was thrown an unexpected um sad thing and that my father was diagnosed with advanced cancer and um I actually immediately after the campaign was over 
completely wore a hat that I've never worn in my life, um, which is medical caregiver. And so I was taking care of him really November, December, and January until his passing in late January. He was only diagnosed in September. It all happened very quickly, uh, quite devastating. We were very close. He lived in the same home as as I did, uh, helped in the raising of my daughter because my husband was off at combat. Mm-hmm. So I've admittedly been in a bit of mourning for the last several weeks um, and thinking about what's important in life as one does tend to do uh, right. when you have a loss, a great loss. I am certainly getting my energy back and will look to what's next. I, I am going to uh, start taping new episodes of a television show that I host based in uh, Greater Hazleton. I'll start doing that this spring. And the name of the show, please. Oh, it's called The Storm. The Storm. Yeah, and I have uh, political guests. I have uh, community leaders on, and I do that. It keeps me out of trouble. And certainly if somebody uh, piques my interest, if there is a candidate that I see that piques my interest, um, I am not opposed to taking on another campaign. Uh, We'll see. I have not been approached as of yet by anybody for any federal races or any um, other races. I've been pretty much in hiding for a while, admittedly, dealing with family things. But um, there are going to be some tough races coming up. We have a presidential re-election campaign coming. So we will see what I do. To be determined, I guess. I, I'm kind of a go-with-the-flow person as I get older. And I think that's one of the things that being a military wife has taught me. I, I don't try to force-fit things. If it's meant to be, it will. And um, if people want me to do something, if I think they're the right fit for me, I will. I often throw it up to God, though, to see what's going to happen next. That's Strong faith. Strong faith. Your faith got you through many, many trials. I have an incredibly uh, strong faith. I've lost a child in my life as well. I I have a very uh, strong sense of faith, and and that's very important to me. Um, Just just a belief that there is something bigger than self, and there is someone that gives one the strength to get through. And I think that you know, as a woman. It is very important to um, to be strong and to persevere and to be a good example for one's daughter and for one's community and just to try to do the best you can do at whatever you do. Um, we don't always get as many shots at things as we deserve no, or we should. Don't. No, Absolutely. we don't. And nor do we necessarily get the credit for things that we deserve or should as a gender. You know, oftentimes um, the other gender will take the credit or is maybe better at tooting their own horn than we are. Um, That's something that I think we need to work on. (laughs) And we need to be there for each other more, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that women do need to support other women trying to get things done. Um, I think that that we need to lift each other up and not knock each other down because there's plenty of other people that are willing to knock Absolutely. us down. Absolutely. Do you think maybe you ever give uh, politics a run? You know, a lot of people have asked me uh-huh. to run for office in, <laughs> over the years. They've asked me to run for Congress. They've asked me to run for state representative, all sorts of things. Um, I admittedly like the behind-the-scenes part, though. I really do. I, I'm a strategist. 
Um, I am I I enjoy that side of it. I enjoy and I'm a marketer. So, you know, it's almost like marketing a product in a way. It's mm-hmm. a person rather right. than a box of cookies. I mean, it's a person. But I enjoy that side of things. I'm not I'm not necessarily the person that's going to be out there shaking everybody's hands. It's not I'm not a super extrovert. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer the getting to know someone, figuring out what makes them tick, and helping other people succeed. I love to help other people succeed. And I think whether it's veterans or candidates or companies, I get a charge out of watching others do well. That's, to me, success. Um, which is, which maybe, you know, maybe I, I, I don't know. I just, that's, that's just what I love to do. I just love to do that. And I think it's really a great thing because you make it happen. I try to. I yeah. do. I, 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 I like coming up with a plan. There's usually the people that like to do the planning and the strategy side. And then there's the other people that, that are really good at executing. I love to do both. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I, I, I love to execute my plan. I love doing that and then helping someone else achieve their goal. That just, to me, is the greatest success there is. It's ideal. Tiffany Cloud, thank you so much. Thank you um, for having me. You and your story, you are remarkable. Yep. And um, I'm, I'm very thankful that, that you agreed to come in and spend some time with us. Well, you're remarkable. Thank <laughs> you for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope that your venture is a great success. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great week, everyone.